On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at verses 8 through 14. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, if you'll follow along now. As I begin reading in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, where we read, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May the Lord bless his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we're working our way through this final section of Ephesians, looking at Paul's practical instruction about walking worthy of our calling or uh, living out the Christian life. And you'll remember he's given us examples of what our conduct as Christians should and should not be. He's instructed us about sinful, unchristlike attitudes that are to be put away and Christ-like attitudes that we're to cultivate. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said that we are continually and increasingly to become imitators of God because we're His beloved children. And this means, of course, that we're to be imitators of Christ. And so therefore, as Paul said in chapter 5, verse 2, we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This sacrificial, unconditional love of Christ is to be the love that uh, is the distinguishing mark of our lives, and it's to govern all that we say and do. And then in verses 3 through 7, I mean, Paul, continuing to emphasize the, the fact that Christians must not live as pagans do, turned to address the issue of moral or sexual purity. And he began with two lists of sins we must avoid in verse 3. He said, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So there must, there's not even to be a hint of these things in, in our lives, not a hint of these things among Christians. And then in verse 4, he gives a, related, a list of related sins. He said, let, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
And so not only should we as Christians never engage in sexual sins of any kind, Paul wants believers also to eliminate any kind of indecent behavior from their lives and and every form of, of filthy talk because these sins are absolutely inconsistent with our new identity in Christ. And instead, Paul says, we're to be characterized by thanksgiving. And after calling us to sexual purity, then in verses 5 to 7, Paul added two severe warnings just to remind us of, of how serious this matter is, and also to motivate us to take these words seriously. He said in verses 5 and 6, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And God reacts against sin. You know, the unbeliever will experience his eternal wrath and the believer his loving discipline. But either way, all of those who pursue sexual sin uh, may suffer the consequences. But for those who fall into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repent in, in shame and humility, I mean, of course there is forgiveness. And since the consequences of living an immoral life are so serious, Paul warned in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. In other words, don't join the world in its immorality. Don't, don't be partners with unbelievers in their sin. Don't participate in those things. And now, after warning against sexual sin, telling the Ephesians in the sexually immoral pagan culture they lived in, that among believers, there's not even to be a hint of sexual immorality, we can imagine some of the the Ephesians who were struggling with these sins, hanging their heads in shame, or, or perhaps shaking their heads in resistance as they thought to themselves, seriously, Paul? I mean, not even a hint of sexual immorality? Then how is anyone supposed to live, especially in a place like Ephesus? I mean, no one one can be what God requires. No one can live that life. It's not possible. That's not even realistic, Paul. And so they would have concluded that perhaps there's, there's no hope. But there is hope. And as we come to verses 8 to 14, Paul tells the Ephesians and us how to live as God's dearly loved children of light. And this divides into four sections. First of all, Paul gives us the contrast of what we were before and after our salvation. Secondly, he gives us the characteristics of the children of light. Third, he gives God's command to those who would walk in the light. And then fourthly, he gives God's call to children of light who are spiritually asleep. So let's look now at verse 8, where after warning them in verse 7 not to become partners with the world and its immorality, Paul tells them why. Contrasting what they were were with what they are now in Christ, using the the familiar biblical figures of darkness and light. So the reason Christians must not become partners with unbelievers is because of their new identity in Christ. He says in verse 8, notice, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Darkness and light. 
And the word pictures, light and darkness, are, are very familiar terms in Scripture. In Psalm 119, 105, we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In Psalm 119, verse 130, we read, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Proverbs 6.23, For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproof, uh, reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And then in the New Testament, we read in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Apostle Paul uses the imagery of darkness and light a number of times throughout the New Testament in his epistles. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for example, he writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, he said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, we read it this morning, or John did. For, for, you all, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so light and darkness are a prominent theme throughout the Bible. And here Paul says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And the phrases at one time and but now contrast a, a former time with the present. And so first of all, Paul says that uh, at one time they were darkness. They were darkness. And the form of the word were tells us two important things. First of all, the past tense indicates a condition that no longer exists. And then that truth is reinforced by the words, at one time. And you'll remember that earlier in the letter, Paul said, we were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's what we were at one time. That's what we were previously. That's what we were in the past. And secondly, I want you to notice that Paul does not say that we were once in or of darkness, though that would absolutely be true. And in other places, Scripture speaks of a person's being in or of darkness. But, but here, Paul says something more profound. He says we were darkness. We were darkness. We were darkness. Before we came to Christ, our entire existence, our, our, our being as, as well as our behavior was characterized by darkness. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul uses darkness metaphorically to speak of the spiritual and moral darkness that characterizes the nature of unbelievers. Darkness describes spiritual deadness, the, the lack of a relationship with God, the absence of holiness. I mean, that the heart of an unsaved person is in darkness, mental darkness. They don't know the truth. 
Also, moral darkness. They don't, they don't do what's right. Their conduct reflects the darkness they're in. It's the darkness of sin, unbelief, and the darkness of rebellion. You see, we were not simply victims of Satan's system, but we were contributors to it. We were not merely in sin. Our very nature was characterized by sin, by darkness. You see, we were not essentially good people who had stumbled or, or strayed off the path. We were, in our very nature, dark. Paul says, we were darkness. Spiritual and moral darkness had not only invaded our lives, but had become our life. We were darkness. There, there was no other aspect to our spiritual life other than that of darkness. And this is what the Bible tells the natural man. And this is why the gospel is so offensive, because the Bible tells the natural man, you're darkness. You cannot. And you will not lead a, a holy life and godly life, because you are yourself unholy and ungodly. You are darkness. You see, Christianity says the real problem with people is not their environment. It's not the circumstances of their lives. It's not uh, because they may have had bad parents. It's not due to a lack of education or uh, bad relationships or dead-end jobs, but rather their moral bondage and spiritual corruption due to indwelling sin. They're spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. They are darkness. They're in darkness, and according to Jesus, they also love the darkness and refuse to come to the light. And so unless they're born again, they'll remain a child of darkness and of the devil and of God's wrath. And this is true for every unbeliever. It was true of me. It was true of you. It, it was true of all of us. We ourselves were once darkness. We were without God and without hope. But that's what we used to be. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness. But, but, but now he says you are light in the Lord. But now it means at the present moment. And in contrast to what we used to be, Paul says you are light in the Lord. So we used to be darkness, but now we are light. Well, what does that mean? Well, light in Scripture is a picture of truth, knowledge, holiness, moral purity, and as such, it's used to describe God's character. For example, 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Light is also used in the New Testament as a metaphor for conversion in 2 Corinthians 4.6. Paul said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.13, Paul said, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, wrote, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
So light is used to describe God's character. It's, it, uh, it is used in the New Testament as a metaphor for conversion. Light also speaks of the illumination a person receives as a believer to live a godly life as a consequence of their relationship with God. And Paul's point is simply that Christians are no longer darkness. They are now light. Well, how did this happen? And is this something that we accomplished on our own by keeping the law so as to make ourselves acceptable to God? I mean, did did we achieve this by uh, good works that we have done? Well, absolutely not. We could never do this ourselves. Then what happened? How did this take place? Well, the gospel of God's grace transformed our lives. We were born again by God's saving grace. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the light of the gospel came shining into our hearts, you know, piercing our hearts, our, our very soul, dispelling the darkness. And, and God saved us. And notice that, that Paul says, We are light in the Lord. We only become light in the Lord. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, faith in Christ brings us uh, into a new realm, the, the kingdom of light and of salvation over which Christ is Lord and Savior. That's the only way that we become light is through faith in Christ. You know, as Paul wrote in Colossians 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, he said, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And as Peter said, he's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. But that's not all. Jesus said of Himself in John twelve thirty six, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And of course, that is exactly what happens when we trust in Christ alone for salvation. We become sons or or children of light. You see, according to the Word of God, Christianity involves a radical and supernatural transformation of the inner life. And this is evident by what Paul says here. You, at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And you'll notice once again that Paul does not say that we are in the light or of the light. And Scripture sometimes speaks of believers being in and of the light, but here Paul says we are light. And we were formerly darkness, but now we are light. That's the identity of every believer in Christ from the moment we place our faith and trust in Him. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, He said to His disciples, You are the light of the world. You see, by virtue of being born again, we are now in Christ. We share Christ own nature, and therefore we share in His light. I mean, we are not the light. He is the light. We merely share in His light and and reflect His light. At least that's what we're supposed to do. And so this is why it can be said of believers that we are light in the Lord. 
We who were once children of darkness are now children of light. And, and therefore, in light of that fact, in light of that glorious truth, we must live as children of light. We're to manifest in our lives that we truly belong to the Lord who is himself light. And this has been Paul's point throughout this section, beginning back in chapter 4, verse 1, where he told us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Believers are to live a certain way. We're to live differently. We're to live as who we are in Christ, and that's his point here. I mean, we're children of the light, and, and we're, we're to manifest that in our lives through the way that we live. Because you see, the new birth initiates the believer into a brand new life to be lived. I mean, becoming a Christian isn't just, you know, I said a prayer and I'm going to add Jesus to my life and just keep living the way I want to live. No. The, the, the new birth initiates the believer into a brand new life, and this new life is to be lived out. And this is why Paul says at the end of verse 8, notice, Walk as children of light. And of course, you'll remember in the Bible, the word walk refers to how you and I live our lives. It refers to our conduct and our behavior, our day-by-day our -day living, our habitual way of life. I mean, as Christians, our conduct should, should flow from our nature. In other words, our lifestyle should be consistent with who we are in Christ. And again, this goes back to chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul urges to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And, and then in chapter 5, verse 2, where he commanded us to walk in love. Here Paul says, we're light in the Lord, therefore we're to live as children of the light. We're, we're to walk as children of light. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And as believers, we are called to walk in the light just as Jesus himself is in the light. Well, what does that look like? Practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, there are characteristics that will always be evident in the lives of those who have been transformed from children of darkness into children of light. And Paul gives those to us now in verses 9 and 10. Notice verses 9 and 10. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word for connects this to the previous verse by elaborating on, on what it means for us to walk in the light. And the phrase fruit of light is only used here in the New Testament, only used here in, in the whole entire Bible. But fruit is an expression that Paul uses to describe the, the outworking of our new life in Christ. In other words, once a person receives new life in Christ, I mean, God's power works in that person. God's power works in us. 
to produce characteristics found in God himself. And in Galatians 5, Paul refers to it as the, the fruit of the Spirit. And as fruit, these virtues are byproducts of faith in Christ, and these, these are not prerequisites for being accepted by God. So, you know, being good and right and true, you, you don't have to become those things uh, to be accepted by God. Because you could never be good, right, and true as far as God is concerned with your standing before Him. I mean, these are, these, this is the fruit. This is the outworking of our new life in Christ. These virtues are byproducts of faith in Christ and are not prerequisites for being accepted by Him. And so these are the characteristics of light, biblically speaking. Well, what are they? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. And if we're born again into the kingdom of light, these will be evident in our lives. These will be seen in our lives. Well, let's look at them one by one. First is good or goodness. Uh, it's also listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and it's, it's a quality found in God Himself. It's a trait that the Holy Spirit uh, works to produce in the life of every believer, and this is because God Himself is good. And God himself is good all of the time to his people. And the basic idea of this word is, is benevolence and, and generosity towards someone else. And generosity may imply financial gifts, but it also suggests the, the giving of our time and energies to others in practical ways to show our care and concern for them. And so it's the love of God being acted out in the flesh. It's, it's treating others the way our, our one desires to be treated themselves. You know, if we're children of light and if God's light is living in us, we're going to be good to others just as God is good to us. Secondly, Paul says, the fruit of, the fruit, the fruit of light is found in all that is right, or in some translations, in all righteousness. Now, we generally speak of righteousness in terms of our standing before God, but here, Paul is referring to our faithfulness to people and, and to our obligations. You know, one commentator said, it is regard for the rights of others, giving both to men and to God that which is their due. You know, God is, is righteous to us. In other words, he, he fulfills all his promises and, and he is faithful as our God. His, his word is sure. You can count on him. And so as he lives in us and as we imitate him as children of light, we'll be righteous or upright in all of our dealings with others. And then thirdly, Paul speaks of the fruit of all that is true. And like the other two virtues, truth is also an attribute of God and should characterize both the speech and the lifestyle of believers. And to be true has to do with honesty, reliability, trustworthiness, and integrity in all things. It's, it's the opposite of the hypocritical, deceptive, and false ways of the old life, which always wants to give a false impression. And according to one commentator, or one commentator said, believers live their lives on a higher level than do unbelievers. Truth is made manifest in both what they do and what they say. And so these are characteristics of those who are Light in the Lord. Their lives are characterized by goodness, righteousness, 
and truth. And of course, we are not these things perfectly. Uh, But these virtues will be present in our lives to some degree. And we should be growing in them. So they should be present in our lives, and we should be growing in them. And this is a very important point. And I say that because without that fruit, there's no evidence of the life of God in our lives. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And though the context there is false prophets, it's also true of anyone. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Because you don't get grapes from a thorn bush. You don't get figs from thistles. You see, every person bears fruit of some kind. Those who are in darkness bear bad fruit. And those who are light in the Lord bear good fruit, or as Paul says here, the fruit of light. This means then that the person who does not bear some fruit of of righteousness in his or her life has no claim on Christ. Because there is no such thing. The Bible knows nothing of a fruitless Christian. Because you see, where there is life, there's going to be evidence of life. Just as where there is death, there'll be evidence of death. Children of light will bear the fruit of light and will continue to bear even more fruit because Jesus said in John 15, 8, this is, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, certainly a Christian can fall into sin. And when a Christian falls into sin, the the fruitfulness of their life suffers because righteous fruit, good fruit, is not going to be produced out of sin. But the complete absence of any fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth proves the complete absence of salvation. As one man said, assurance of salvation cannot be reliably determined by what has happened in the past, no matter how dramatic or meaningful at the time. It can only be based with certainty on the evidence of present fruit being produced by a spiritual life. And that's exactly right. For the fruit of light is found in all that is is good and right and true. So let me ask you, Does this describe you? Are these things someone uh, living next door to you or working with you in your office or going to school with you would, would say about you? You know, is this what your children would say to their friends who ask about their parents? Or what your parents or or friends would say about your children? Well, if the answer is no, well, then you need to soberly examine your life. 
Because, loved ones, this is what matters most about us. This is what matters most. Not money, status, or worldly achievements, but our relationship to the living God. When Jesus said the tree is known by its fruit, and these are the fruits that grow in his light. And as Christians, we're to cultivate these characteristics in our lives. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, it takes effort. It doesn't happen passively. It takes effort on our part by devoting ourselves to God's Word, to, to reading it, studying it, sitting under the preaching of it, meditating upon it, and, and uh, along with that, prayer. Asking the Lord to teach us, to enlighten us, to, to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. And of course, the goal of all of this is what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3, that we may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so what do you do if you don't see the the fruit of light, goodness, righteousness, and, and, and truth in your life? Well, the Bible says you need to confess that to God. You know, Lord, I am not the person you want me to be. And Lord, I confess my sin and I ask you to forgive me and because I want your light to shine on me and in me and, and through me. And perhaps you don't see the fruit of, of light, which is goodness, righteousness, and truth in your life because you're not born again. You're not a believer in Christ. In that case, the Bible says you must also confess to God. You know, telling him that you realize that you're a lost sinner and that he is your only hope for salvation and you confess your sin and ask him to forgive you. And he will. And he will come to dwell within you by his spirit and begin uh, that work of producing the fruit uh, of light, that that. Uh, goodness, righteousness, and truth. And apart from him, apart from Christ, this is never going to happen because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But he added, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And now in verse 10, Paul adds the fourth characteristic of the the children of light. Notice verse 10. He says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And this is another way in which we're to grow as God's children. We're to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, the single Greek word translated try to discern means to put to the test or or to examine, or to approve. The word translated here as pleasing is also translated acceptable in in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And so what Paul is telling us is that as believers, we're to examine and evaluate everything in our lives in order to determine the right course of action. I mean, we're to, we're to test every thought, every word, every action, every, every area of our life. 
Our conversation, our standard of living, our clothes, books, business, pleasures, entertainments, friendships, vacations, cars, sports, hobby, etc., etc. We're to test every area of life to determine if that is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Why? Well, because as Paul said to the Colossians, we are to walk or live or live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Fully pleasing to Him. And the form of the word translated try to discern also tells us that, that learning to walk as children of light, discovering what is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord isn't, isn't a one-time activity, but rather it's an ongoing process. This, this is the effort of a lifetime. This will continue throughout our lives as believers. And so as we face choices or decisions, we we should ask, would would Christ like this? You know, what does the Lord think about this? How does this appear in His presence? You know, will this bring glory to God? When we're about to speak, we should ask, if I say this, will Jesus be pleased? You know, is this going to advance his kingdom and, and bear good fruit, or is this going to tear down and, and destroy? I mean, this is the standard for Christian living. It's not what men approve, nor is uh, it's not what is acceptable according to the morality of our culture. It's not even uh, what our own seared consciences may allow. The standard is what is pleasing to the Lord. And we know that, we know that God's will is, is what pleases Him, and what pleases Him is goodness, righteousness, and truth. And so in all we say and do in every area of life, we must always seek to apply the standards of these three characteristics. Is this good? Is it, is it, is it consistent with God, God's character? Is this right? Does it conform to God's Word? You know, is this true? Is it going to advance God's truth in the world? Is it going to advance the Gospel? You know, what is pleasing to the Lord Jesus is that we seek as God's dear children to live according to the promises and precepts of God's Word. I mean, just as Jesus perfectly pleased His Father by being obedient to death, even the death of the cross, so too we as Christians are similarly to to please the Lord by our faithful obedience to His Word. And didn't Jesus say, if you love Me, you will what? Our obedience is, is is a manifestation of our love. So you can tell me all day long you love the Lord, but if your life is one of continual disobedience, guess what? I don't believe it. And you see, the more we come to know Jesus, and and, and the more we come to love Him, we'll realize what a blessing it is to live this way. Because Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so as believers, Paul says that we must try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And to do this, as Paul said in Romans 12 too, 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you see, only a believer who has learned to think biblically by the prayerful study of God's Word is able to understand and desire the things that please the Lord. And so if you don't desire the things that please the Lord in your life, that should be a, 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 of great concern to you. Because only a believer is able to understand and desire the things that please the Lord. And so if you don't please the Lord, you, you have no desire to please the Lord. You'd rather live for yourself and do what you want to do when you want to do it. That's a problem. As believers, Paul says, we must try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You know, as believers, we may not please everyone, and most likely we're not. Because living as children of light will have a radical impact on our relationships. We may be mocked for following Jesus. You know, some may think we're living in the dark ages because, you know, we actually believe the Bible and believe that Christians are supposed to live their lives according to the Bible. But we must keep coming back to this fundamental question. You know, what will please the Lord? Well, walking in the light is what pleases the Lord Jesus. Now, having laid out the characteristics of children of light, Paul now gives God's command. In verse 7, Paul said believers are not to become partners with unbelievers because their their actions are not proper for saints and because the wrath of God is, is the fate of those who live in sin. And here in verse 11, Paul just presses this matter even a little further. He says in verse first part of verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So this is a simple and direct biblical command. Christians are not to be characterized, or Christians are to be characterized by the fruit of of light, and they're to have nothing at all to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now the word unfruitful means useless, having no beneficial use or unproductive. And though Paul doesn't specify what... what, uh, works of darkness he's referring to. They're no doubt typified by the sins he's already mentioned in in chapters 4 and 5. I mean, those are merely representative, but he's mentioned sensuality, every kind of impurity, lying, stealing, corrupt speech, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. I mean, uh, those and, and really every other kind and degree of sin are to be avoided by the believer because they are unfruitful. They are useless. They are unproductive, even harmful, because they bring no benefit, no spiritual benefit to man, nor do they bring glory to God. And when you think of the unfruitful works of darkness, don't necessarily go to these things like, immediately go to these things like sexual immorality, you know, filthiness, I mean, all the things that we just read. 
the unfruitful works of darkness, I mean, every sin comes under that heading. And it, it may not even be something that is sinful. It may be something that, that you do is good, but because you're doing it when you're doing it, it becomes sinful. Because it's putting other things in the place that only God is to occupy. So don't think of, you know, adultery, rape, murder, robbery, as these are the unfruitful works of darkness. Well, I'm glad I don't do any of those things. No. Any sin. And perhaps even anything that perhaps in and of itself is not sinful, but it becomes sinful in the way you use it or the way you do it. You know, Paul asked in 2 Corinthians 6.14, what fellowship has light with darkness? And his answer is, none. And so the rub comes in, in trying to, de to determine where we draw the lines of separation. I mean, we're not to be partners with those in darkness, nor are we to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. So where do we draw the line in terms of our relationships with the lost? Well, one thing needs to be clear, and that is what Paul is not saying. Paul is not telling us to cut off all contact with unbelievers. I mean, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. In 1 Corinthians, Paul commanded the Corinthian believers to avoid a brother, a professed Christian who had committed gross sexual sin. He said, don't have anything to do with that person. He said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. But then he went on to make clear that he wasn't talking about unbelievers. Of course they're sexually immoral. You wouldn't expect anything different from an unbeliever. They're just being and doing what they are. And so while we as Christians are not to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, uh, neither Paul nor Jesus tells us that we're only to associate with other Christians. I mean, how, how can we ever reach out to the world with the gospel if we cut ourselves off from it? And this was the problem with fundamentalism. They didn't just insulate themselves from the world, they isolated themselves from the world. They wanted nothing to do with the world. It was the attitude of, well, it's us four, close the door, no more. We can never reach out to the world with the gospel if we cut ourselves off from it completely. No, we're to live in this dark world. But Paul insists that we're to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So, in other words, we're not to participate in things that uh, are sinful or things that promote sin and evil. And so if an activity or an event is, is spiritually unfruitful, if it represents the, the values of the world, the values of darkness, if it's not good, right, and true according to the Word of God, then Christians are to stay away from it. And if obviously, this is going to have a big impact on our lives. And this means that we're going to have to abstain from much, if not most, of what is put out today by the entertainment industry. I mean, this will cause us to be careful about business ethics, about interpersonal relations, 
One man said it will shape what we do in our schools. Surely a Christian school will be strikingly different from a secular one, and a Christian who attends a public school will be unable to fit in in many significant ways. And that's always a challenge, always an issue, you know, people wanting to fit in with the world. It's a problem in the church today. That's why in so many churches, the, the light of the gospel is, is turned down and dimmed so that it's not offensive. Because if we can just get the world to like us, then of course they will like our Jesus. Well, that's absolutely ridiculous, and it's not true by any stretch of the imagination. We're to take no part in the dark, unfruitful works of this godless world. Because, uh, you know, if you're a believer, you are of the light. And you are to walk in the light. And this means that you can no longer join the, the sinful lifestyle and, and practices of unbelievers. Hey, listen, you know, a lot of unbelievers, especially in this country, uh, they, 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 they have some kind of an understanding of how Christians are supposed to live. And so if they see you out there doing the same things they're doing at the same time, then they're, they're thinking, well, what does this person have to offer me? Just a bunch of hot air? Because they're no different than me. Here they are. They're right out here alongside me. I know how Christians are supposed to live, and they're not doing it. We can't join in the sinful lifestyle and practices of unbelievers. And one reason for this concern is that the works of darkness are polluting. Look at verse 12. And we'll come back to the last part of verse 11. He says, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So this is probably referring to the sexual immorality and debauchery that Paul warned about back in verse 3. But obviously Paul is talking about it here. And so it's not merely speaking about it in a context like this that Paul is condemning. What he is condemning is dwelling upon these things, filling our minds with these things, even as we would condemn them. I mean, this is true with sin and evil in general, not just sexual immorality, that the more we talk about it, it begins to stick to us and it, and it leaves an indelible impression upon our minds. And this is spiritually dangerous because it's a battle for the mind. So we don't want to be filling our minds with these kinds of things. As one commentator said, some things are so vile that they should be discussed in as little detail as possible because even describing them is morally and spiritually dangerous. And this is an important reason for us not to partake in the unfruitful works of darkness. We belong to God. We belong to Him. And we're not to pollute ourselves and, and our minds with sin and evil. And so as we as, as believers grow in Christ, 
You know, the, the, the process of, of renewal and putting on the new self involves no longer participating in the behaviors that were typical of our pre-conversion life, but, but are shameful and, and inappropriate and, and unproductive for our new life in Christ. And the second reason for us not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness is found in the second half of verse 11. Instead of taking part in the works of darkness, Paul says we're to expose them. We're to expose them. Well, how do we do that? Well, mainly by the way we live. By the way we live and the light that shines out from our lives. And Paul wants us to expose sin simply with our lives. And this doesn't mean running around like some weirdo, you know, some super pious kind of a weirdo who goes around correcting everybody all the time. No, live it out. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So Paul wants us to expose sin simply with our lives by, by living out what we are, but this will also inevitably involve speaking out as well. As believers, I mean, we must speak out against sin. And as believers, we, we must declare that abortion is murder, that abortion is the sinful taking of a human life. I mean, we must declare that marriage is between one genetic man and one genetic woman. We must declare that adultery is wrong, as is premarital sex, and that homosexuality and lesbianism and, and transgenderism is a sin. In addition, as one man said, we should reprove pornography and point out the obvious evils of institutionalized gambling. We must speak out. But then he said, let us make sure that our lives are straight first. The order is essential. We must first live as children of light, then take no part in the works of darkness, and only then will we have the credibility to expose evil in a persuasive manner. It was because the prophets were themselves obedient to God that they could call the people to repent. Before we hold up the Bible before the world, let us first make sure it is the rule of our own lives. In other words, get the log out of your own eye before you try to get that speck out of somebody else's. You see, as believers, we have the responsibility to expose the works of darkness by our conduct and by our words so that those who have gone astray will be convicted and will return to their senses. And so it's not enough for us to not take part in works of darkness. We're to expose them. I mean, to be a, a true follower of Christ is to take a positive stand for purity. I mean, evil practices are not to be ignored or tolerated, but they're to be exposed for what they are. And the third reason why we must not take part in works of darkness is that a true and godly witness will not only expose sin, but it can also serve to lead others into the light. That's Paul's point in verses 13 and 14. The first part of verse 13 actually, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the first part of uh, verse 14 actually belongs 
to verse 13 so that it, it reads, but when, verse 13 should read, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. And although the term anything is used in the, in the context, Paul is referring to those deeds done in secret. You know, in verse 11, Paul instructed the mature believers to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And these verses explain that the positive effects when sins are exposed to the light. I mean, the light not only exposes such sin, but can also transform the sinner. Because some will inevitably come out of the darkness and respond to the light, and and they themselves will become light. I mean, God saved us from darkness, didn't He? And in many cases, He saved us through the witness of a Christian who was completely different from the darkness we knew. And so as God's light shines out from us to others, He may draw some of them to Himself and, and cleanse them with the healing light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the the transformative power of a Christ-like life and a Spirit-empowered testimony can never be underestimated. And so do you see how much is at stake in our obedience to this command, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness? I mean, not only is our own purity and blessing uh, bound up in this, but our witness before the world is placed on the line. And this brings us to verse 14, where Paul now issues God's call to his sleeping children. Notice verse 14. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now there's a debate about the source of this saying. Uh, Some commentators say these are words of a popular hymn in Paul's day, that's sheer speculation. We don't know that. It's more likely that Paul has a biblical passage in mind since he writes, therefore it says. And the closest parallel would be uh, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I mean, this seems to be the passage that Paul is paraphrasing here. But whatever Paul's reference may be, his meaning is clear enough. It's not the unbeliever that's being challenged to wake up and to rise from the dead. Rather, this is a wake-up call to the believer. So as I understand this text, it is not primarily a salvation text, but rather a sanctification text which only makes sense because since chapter 4, verse 1, Paul has been calling believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called and telling them what that looks like and how to live and what to stay away from. And he's telling them to stay away from certain things because he knows that they're struggling with these issues. And so it would be very strange for him uh, in the midst of uh, speaking to the church and unbelievers about how they're supposed to live to put this one verse in here as a call to unbelievers. No, this is a call to sleeping believers. This is a call to those who are flirting with the unfruitful works of darkness, those who are struggling with sexual immorality and the other sins that Paul has listed and warned them about. 
when he's speaking to believers. In Isaiah chapter 60, the exhortation was for the people of Israel to wake up and to turn from their sin to righteousness, from darkness to the light. And in other places, when Paul takes up the theme of light and darkness, he's exhorting Christians to wake up. John read it this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1 to 11 is a great example. And that only makes sense. Because the church tends to fall asleep and compromise. Therefore, its light dims in a world that is perishing in darkness. I mean, today we talk about someone needing a wake-up call when, when, when they seem to be oblivious to imminent consequences of what they're doing. Well, Paul is here issuing this poetic wake-up call in the middle of warning the church about the compromises with darkness. And so looking back on his positive teaching for us to live as children of light and on his negative teaching for us to be separate from darkness, he says to them, wake up, O sleeper. No, wake up. And this line, as well as the next, is, is not a reference, again, not a reference to conversion. It's, 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 it's an exhortation to disobedient or wayward believers to wake up. And then he says, arise from the dead. And this second line is parallel to the first and has a similar meaning. The dead is used metaphorically for those who sleep. I mean, believers have died to sin. They've already been made alive. Nevertheless, they're not to let sin enslave them once again, as Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 6. And so as he did in Romans, Paul is here calling believers to consider themselves as dead to the power of sin, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul's heart is making this appeal, is that, in making this appeal, is that those believers who are persisting in sinful patterns of, of, of behavior will change. That they'll, they'll gain a greater realization of their new identity in Christ. That they'll recognize how their current lifestyle choices are at odds with their new identity in Christ and with the Word of God, and that they'll take the appropriate steps to leave these dark, sinful, and disobedient, unproductive behaviors behind. He's saying, wake up. Wake up. You know, rise out of your slumber. It's not really any different than Jesus' words to a number of the churches in, in the Revelation, the first three chapters. Wake up, he's saying. Wake up. Don't you know how serious this is? Wake up. Because if they do, Paul promises that the resurrected and ascended Christ will shine upon them. I mean, the light of Christ that shines on believers is perhaps best understood to be that the empowering presence of the Lord that directs, encourages, sustains, and, and helps us in our lifelong uh, journey of discipleship and sanctification. In fact, it may very well be another way of referring to the presence of the Holy Spirit who is grieved when believers sin 
but powerfully enables them when they're willing to turn from sin and then pursue a life of holiness. And so you see, loved ones, that the stakes are extremely high. As one man said, the eternal consequences of what we do now are so great and definitive. This is why it is so important that we take this to heart, examine ourselves, and arise in faith before the Lord. And it is always the case, without exception, that when God sends a true revival, He begins by first awakening the sleeping church. And it's when Christians become serious about their faith, about goodness, righteousness, and truth. You know, it's when Christians begin to gather for fervent prayer. And when they have a a fresh and renewed excitement for the Word of God and a sense of the glory of Christ's kingdom, that God will then use His people to shake the world. We talk about revival, we pray about revival, but do we really want revival? Because that means... It begins with us. It begins in the household of God. It means God's people get serious and repent of their sin. Ongoing sin. Sin that they have justified for years and years. Loved ones, the times we live in and the state of our nation and the world are crying out out for a revival from God that will cause the people who live in great darkness to see the great light of Jesus Christ. But first God calls to us, His people, His sleeping, slumbering church, and says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Will it really matter if we do? You know, will God respond to our renewed faith with a fresh outpouring of grace? Well, Jesus assured us that He will. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so Paul brings this section to a close by stating this even more succinctly. You know, awake, O sleeper, arise, he calls. And if we do, he assures us that Christ will shine on us. And then Christ will shine through us. And then, And then our lives will have mattered. They will have mattered for things of eternal glory and blessing. You know, for the salvation of many who are even now perishing in darkness. And also to the praise and the glory of our holy 
and loving God. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. Father in heaven, we thank If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.